everybody. Welcome to another episode of That's So Fetch, where we talk about dating, Torah, and everything in between. I'm so excited to be here with a friend of mine who lives right here in Washington Heights. Uh, her name is Talia Lakritz. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are so excited. We're going to be talking about sex and masturbation and everything else, and also this amazing book called Monologues from the Makom. So Monologues from the Makom is the intertwined narratives of sexuality, gender, body image, and Jewish identity. This is a collection of 32 essays from women that is first-person poetry and prose designed to break the observant Jewish community's taboo against open discussion of female sexuality. You got it. Yeah. So... It's an amazing book, and it's coming out September 1st, so I hope that if you can get your hands on it, that you read it and that you enjoy the ride, because I read it the other day, and I just felt so expansive after reading it. You know, I just, there's so many experiences in here that opened my eyes and also helped me feel less alone, and there's just so much to unpack here, so I'm very excited to be talking about this. And I think it's a really groundbreaking narrative of essays that has a lot of power in it. So Talia, tell us a little bit about yourself. We want to hear more about you. It's not just about the book. We want to hear about, you know, where you're from, what career you find yourself in. Just tell us more about yourself religiously. Where do you find yourself? Sure. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be talking about the book and talking about it on your podcast. So very excited to be here. A little bit more about me. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in a sort of modern Orthodox upbringing, I would say. I went to a Beis Yaakov high school, but generally I identified somewhere along the modern Orthodox spectrum. I went to a modern Orthodox seminary and then I went to Barnard. And then when I left college, I started identifying more with halachic egalitarianism, and um, that's pretty much what I've been involved in religiously. And um, yes, I work as a senior reporter at Insider, and I am a lifestyle reporter, so I write about all sorts of things. And like part of my piece in the book talks about how I used to write about sex and relationships without really having much experience in that area myself as someone who was Shomer Nagia for a long time and, wow. you know, wasn't really involved in that sort of thing at all. Peace. I'd um, love to hear for those of us who don't know so much about halakhic egalitarianism, if you were to kind of like describe it in a nutshell, how would you describe that? Yeah. In a nutshell, I would say it's really from, but gender is not an issue so, like for myself, I go to a shul where I can lead davening and read Torah 
and be counted in a minion and be a full participating member of the community while still feeling like I'm in a really from um, halachically observant environment. So it was the perfect balance for me as someone who really loves traditional communities and that sort of like feeling of mm-hmm. from kite and orthodoxy, but without mm-hmm. yeah. all of the misogyny. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, I feel like it's probably been such an amazing journey for you to find that space that you feel empowered to be a part of and feel happy to be a part of. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely weird when I started, you know, like the first time I led Mariv was like, oh my God, this feels so weird, but also really great. Um, but now that I've been in it for years already, it's, I'm like, how, how did I ever not do this? Like it, how was I not contributing my full self to the community before? It just feels so natural now. Wow. I definitely, I mean, I'm not, I haven't laid and I haven't done a lot of um, the leading and davening spaces. So it's definitely interesting to hear about that journey of like deciding to be a part of it and making yourself more of a leader in those spaces. I started the episode talking about this book called Monologues from the Makom, and I wanted to just bring it back there and mention an excerpt that kind of like helps describe more what the book is about um, from the forward by Rabbanit Dasi Fruchter. Um, she says, the monologues from the Makom book is a brave volume, a set of unique and holy mirrors. It is an extraordinary collection of women's voices coming from a place of the feminine, the wild, the intimate, and the bold. Just as the women in Egypt took risks to own their femininity and sexuality, these writings come from a deep place where women take control of their own voices and stories. Reading these pieces feels like a privilege, a tiny glimpse into 32 mirrors. Within each one, we of course see the reflection of the writer, but readers will also see themselves. Women who read these pieces will likely identify deeply with at least several of these works. So I'm going to stop there because... You guys need to buy this book and read it <laughs> yourself. And, you know, that's that's just to give a glimpse of what this book is about. And it's really was such a ride reading it. And and way before the monologues from the Makom became a book, there was an open mic event that started it all that Talia was actually at. So let's hear Talia talk more about it. The first monologues from the Makom event happened in a Washington Heights apartment and Sarah Rosner who was a student at Stern at the time, just sort of put out a call on Facebook about the event and saying if anyone is interested in sharing personal narratives about sexuality, gender, body image, identity, anything sort of relating to Judaism and gender, like any of that is welcome. And so I was a student at Barnard at the time. So I was really interested in Jewish feminist things, still am. So I went to the event and I was just blown away by the talent and the courage and the vulnerability of everybody who shared. And I think the overall feeling in the room was like, this is really big and we want more people to hear these stories because I think in religious communities, narratives about female sexuality and women's experiences in their own bodies are often not acknowledged or not given space 
Um, they're often silenced, marginalized. And so just to have a dedicated platform and a space for people to share honestly and openly about how growing up in these communities has affected them and shaped them was just so powerful. So after that event, there were a few more monologue from the Makom events. There was one at the Jofa conference, which is the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance. So I performed at that one also a few years later. And then there was another one. And as these events gained more traction, there was interest in compiling these monologues into a book, not only monologues that had been performed, but also to give the opportunity for anyone who, you know, maybe couldn't access the events, didn't live in New York City, whatever it was, to also be part of this project. So um, yeah, a bunch of really talented, fabulous Jewish women took this on and collected the stories, spent years compiling them, editing them, working with the publisher to get them out there. And now it's finally done. Yeah. It's, you can't buy it just yet, not till September 1st, but just one thing about this book that really strikes me is, you know, I feel like I've gone through a lot of feeling like, oh, if I'm not careful, you know, there's this quote in this book that I wrote down, if I'm not careful, no one will want to date me. And I just really, that sentiment really struck me because I've felt that before that, you know, I need to kind of be a certain way because, Otherwise, you know, I won't be eligible. And I've definitely experienced a lot of shame around the things that I have done throughout my years because of where I find myself in the Jewish community. And I just think I'm constantly awed by the power of human connection. And I think these stories really will bring people together in a way that's very powerful. So I was just thinking while you were speaking, do you feel like the the goal of the book is to connect women or to share like what is who's the audience here? Is it speaking for women to band together through this or is it also for men and, you know, older communities like who who is this book speaking to? Yeah, the book is for everyone. I think everyone who reads it can gain important lessons from it. I think mm -hmm. for women, it can be just really validating to realize that you're not the only one who is feeling these things or has gone through these things or yeah. been told yeah. things like that. Like, you know, you're never going to find a husband if you don't stop X, Y, Z. And I think it's also really important for men to read this book and just walk in our shoes for a little bit yeah, and absolutely. understand our experience more. You know, a lot of, I, I think like in Orthodox communities, men don't really have to put themselves in women's shoes because, mm -hmm. you know, there is some degree of separation. Like men don't know what it's like to sit behind a mechitza or not be counted and yeah. not feel fully part of a community. And, or, I mean, maybe some men do maybe, you know, like feel like that's erasing the queer experience a little bit, but um, in general, like cis straight men, um, I think really have a lot to learn from this book and, um, really anyone, anyone who has felt like they were different or felt conflicted about issues of sexuality and gender and religion and how those things interact in their lives. I think 
I mean, it's also really important, I think, for religious community leaders to read this book and so, so that there can be some kind of structural change in the way that we address these things in communities. The fact that sex education and Jewish schools is non-existent in a lot of places and the messages that often male religious authorities are sending to their female congregants. And there's just so much work to be done. And I think that this book is really trying to just start that conversation. What did you write for the monologues for the Makom? Yeah, my piece is called Love on the Brain. And I wrote about how for most of my life as someone who was religious and Shomer Nagia, my sexuality felt very theoretical for a long time. It was something that I sort of saw as outside of myself. It was this thing that I existed and I knew was sort of part of me, but not really something I had a lot of embodied experience with. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, especially in my career as a journalist where I was writing stories about sex and sexuality and relationships and dating – I felt like such a fraud (laughs) that I I didn't have any sort of real experience. Yeah. Wasn't it hard to write about that stuff? Like, you know, knowing that, like, how did you, you know, give it um, some personal context? Yeah. I just found really good, like, experts to interview. I went to a lot of events where I I talked to people. Um, I, you know, went to sex toy shops and you know i so the nice thing about being a journalist is that it's not necessarily your job to be the expert it's your job to talk to them and craft a compelling story with the information that they give you so um that was one way i sort of worked around it but um yeah it was definitely weird i, I see yeah I th- there was definitely some like imposter syndrome going on there um yeah mm-hmm. but then in the piece, I, I talk about my transition from my sexuality feeling very sort of theoretical and abstract to the moment where I made the, the decision to have that be an embodied experience. And, you know, my first sort of foray into like physical intimacy with a partner and So not to cut Talia off here, but I think that it will be helpful for me to give a little sneak peek and share her actual piece and read it for you all so that when she expresses her reasoning for writing it, it will come full circle for you. So her piece is called Love on the Brain, as she mentioned, and it goes like this. Sex therapist Ian Kerner writes in Passionista, the empowered woman's guide to pleasure, that the brain is humankind's largest, most powerful sex organ. For most of my life, it was the only one I had. As a lifestyle reporter, I covered sexual health, pleasure, and wellness while actively repressing my own sexuality as an unmarried religious woman. You can find articles under my name with titles like Five Ways to Have the Best Sex of Your Life and A Sex Expert Reveals Four Products That Will Help You Have Better Sex. I wrote about intercourse without ever having had it. I wrote about the best lubricants without ever having used them. I wrote about the importance of communication in intimate relationships without ever having been in one. Luckily, the job of a journalist is not to be the expert. It's knowing what to ask the experts and how to write a compelling story with what they tell you. 
I did my research, of course. I gave myself the sex education I never received in my base Yaakov high school. I attended sex education expos where the press packets came with condoms. I read books like Sex That Works and Curvy Girl Sex and interviewed the authors. I attended classes at sex toy shops like Babeland and The Pleasure Chest and attended a two-week online summit about sexuality and identity called Explore More. I took notes, recorded interviews, collected business cards. I was, to borrow a term coined by sex educator Reed Mialko, a sex geek. I was geeky about sex in the way science fiction fans are geeky about Star Wars, enthralled and obsessed with it, but knowing all the while that it wasn't actually part of my reality. A recent college graduate in my mid-twenties, I had yet to forge a meaningful romantic connection with anyone. Being Shormanagia wasn't particularly challenging because I felt no pull or desire to break it. Sexual intimacy existed only in theory, reserved for an eventual marriage to a partner I had no concept of. I arbored crushes, I bought a vibrator, I fantasized about embarking on casual hookups just to see what all the hype was about. But expressing my sexuality in a real way didn't seem possible. And then I met someone. He was slender and lean, wearing a turquoise t-shirt and fitted jeans, wavy golden hair that flopped adorably above his eyebrows. His open, friendly expression was offset by dark brown eyes. Immediately I was drawn to him. I felt safe in his gentle yet confident presence, in the unassuming way he carried himself. I just wanted to keep talking to him. I day daydreamed about how lovely it would be to be on the receiving end of his affections, to have that steady, caring attention directed at me. And then, after weeks of flirting and evenings spent together, it was. I've never kissed anyone before, so I might not be very good at it, I told him. Really? he asked in surprise. Really, I whispered, but you're welcome to try. With no hesitation, he scooted over to my side of the couch, cradled my face with one of his palms, and gently placed his lips on mine. I remember thinking that this is what skydiving must feel like, when, after meticulous preparations and a steady climb, you finally tip over the edge of the plane and let yourself fall. Hit closeness, the explosion of sensation, I didn't realize how sensitive my lips were, how tender another's would feel against them. I closed my eyes. Are you okay? he asked. Yes, I said. You have to tell me if anything makes you uncomfortable or if you want to stop. Promise? Yes. His mouth was sweet, smooth, and soft like whipped cream contrasted by the coarse brush of his stubble against my cheek. I opened my eyes and saw that his were closed. He's enjoying this, I thought. I'm enjoying this, I thought. Stop thinking, I thought, and I pressed my lips to his. And now back to Talia. There were a few reasons I, I wanted to write about it. Um, one was just, I think it's important to show that like, even if you're Shoma Nagia and don't have a lot of like sexual experience, it doesn't mean that you can't have a fulfilling, empowering sex life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think what, for me, what I found valuable about my experience being Shoma Nagia for a long time, spending lots of years learning about sex before I actually did anything, um, was that it gave me a lot of time to unlearn a lot of the harmful messages that I'd received about sex from, you know, my religious education and mm -hmm. to just learn a lot more about myself and mm -hmm. like, what I like and, and what gives me pleasure. And then having done all of that work and then bringing a partner into the equation, I think if I hadn't had the chance to do all of that, my physical experiences would not have been as fulfilling and empowering as they were. So I guess I wanted to give other people hope that 
you know, just because yeah. you haven't really had a lot of experience doesn't mean that you never will and that it will never be good and that your relationship with sex will never be healthy. Um, so that was one part. And then I also made the decision to like write about that first physical encounter like and include the elements of affirmative consent, including the conversation of like him checking in to make sure that I was comfortable and like me giving verbal consent that it was okay to kiss me. And I think there's a lot of like misconception that consent is like awkward or it ruins the moment. And I just completely disagree. I think it's mm -hmm. more awkward if you do something that someone's not comfortable with. Like that's really what ruins the moment. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I I just wanted to give a positive example of an encounter where like both partners were considerate and consent was very affirmative and enthusiastic and show that that can also be really intimate and wonderful. Yeah. Was it was it hard for you to make the decision to break your Shromanagia? And also I wanted to ask, you know, you had all these experiences learning about sex, but you weren't partaking in it yourself. How did you ever feel curious like you wanted to or did you feel like you were kind of doing this like investigation before um, diving into the embodied experience, as you said. Yeah. Investigation is a really good word. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like you were investigating, you were like this, and it sounds like it was something that was very separate from you, but you were a part of understanding. But I know that you mentioned you broke Shomanagia, but it sounds like you were really pretty, you know, it seems like it came natural to you almost, which is not, has not been my experience at all. So I'm curious to hear more about that. Yeah, it it did. I, I made the decision to stop being Shermanigia before I even met my partner. So um, that was something that, like it was a decision that I made completely separately. I just decided, like I was single and I said, okay, like the next person that I meet that I feel like I want to do this with, I'm not going to say no and I'm going to try it out and see how it goes. Um, yeah, I feel like I, my sort of experimental phase, like instead of like having experiences with multiple partners, I spent that time like with myself, like, you know, buying lots of sex toys and um, just learning what, what worked for me before yeah. I like brought anyone else into the equation. So like that was just, that was what worked for me. That was the way yeah. that I felt comfortable like diving into this and like if another person's approach is to like have lots of partners, I think that's great too. Like I don't think there's one right way to go about it, but this was my experience and it worked for me. Um, how did you make the decision to break it? Like what spurned that decision? Yeah, it was like partly sexual frustration of like being 24 years old and never having even like held another person's hand or like you know, hugged anyone that I was like romantically attracted to. Mm -hmm. um, so it's partly that. But I think I just remember like sitting in Starbucks with a friend and just talking about dating and stuff. And I was like, it's just, I don't know. It was, we were just talking about it. And I was like, yeah, I think, I think I'm ready. Like I just, I just felt like it was time. I don't know 
if there was any like one moment where it hit me like, okay, yes, I'm going to flip the switch now. It was a gradual process Mm -hmm. of, like I said, learning more about sex and experimenting a little bit and just developing a healthy relationship with it first. Mm -hmm. And then taking the step of like, okay, I think I am ready to, you know, actually try this out and, and see how it goes. Yeah. I'm so curious. I know the story was really sweet because there was just like such a nice rapport between you and your partner. Is it, does it happen to be the person you're still dating? It is. Okay, that's, <laughs> we that's have, we celebrated three years this wow, summer. Wow. He's wonderful. That's so beautiful. <laughs> and now he's published. Yeah. I, I did ask his permission before I submitted the piece and he was like, sure, if anything, it just makes me look great. So <laughs> it does. Absolutely. It's like, you know, you, you, he was your your first. Yeah. He was like, there's nothing in there that I'm embarrassed by. And which is just, yeah, he's great. I think it's important and powerful in its own way to say, you know, there's this and I was wronged and this guy, you know, he was a fuck boy and like this happened and that happened. But like, sometimes it's also nice to just be like, I had a good experience. I was asked to be kissed and we kissed and all was fine and dandy, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It struck me reading the book that my story is one of the few positive consensual encounters in the book, which is really sad and breaks my heart. It is sad. I think also like, you know, I think where I fall in the consent conversation is that I don't necessarily like want someone to necessarily ask me, like I want them to like quote, feel the moment, you know? Um, And I think sometimes that's hard because like I said, the converse, like you mentioned that sometimes it's a little awkward. And I think for me, sometimes I think the question does come out awkwardly. Um, But I just can think of two instances where one time, you know, I was in a situation and we started kissing and I remembered feeling like he had kind of crossed some boundaries and the next morning I told him, I was like, um, so yeah, I just, you know, all is great. Just kind of wanted to say like, you didn't really ask to, you know, touch me there and things like that. And you just went for it. Um, and he said, wow, like, I'm so grateful that you told me like, cause he was like, a, you know, likes to really think about things. And he's like, I've been thinking about consent. Like, and then later on, he like kind of turned it into a joke, but it was really sweet. He was like, can I do this? Can I do that? And I was like, okay, okay, I get it, you know, but like he was really excited. So I think, um, I guess that's just a thing to notice that like sometimes men are happy to know when we tell them what we want kind of straight out, um, even though it's hard. And I think we're really in a time of like unlearning and relearning and creating new um, kind of like modes of practice. And then like, I guess, you know, a bunch of months later, I was like with this other guy and he was like, by the way, are you sure you want to do this? Because consent is sexy and we're not going to do anything you don't want to do. And I was like, this is so funny. Um, And it's like really interesting because I feel like in both of these experiences, like men really took ownership of this idea of consent and felt like, you know, they don't really know how to go about it, um, but they're just going to try and like, it's just going to work out. And it was like really charming. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. I mean, I think I'll also add that I think our society assumes that men always want sex all the time, but like, it's important 
for men to also like give consent to things like no one should assume that anyone wants anything like it's like regardless of gender it's it's something that applies across the board and just because somebody is male doesn't mean that they always you know want to do everything I think that's a message that at least I received growing up about like male sexuality that it's this like powerful force that is uncontrollable and unquenchable and we have to be so careful not Mm -hmm. to provoke it when like the truth is that male sexuality is also nuanced and complicated and like consent is important across the board. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a good point you bring up. And I feel like just, you know, touching on your point of, you know, demonizing men and making them like I was told many times in various classes and even by uh, friends of mine's parents just telling us, you know, all men are dogs Um And I just think, you know, maybe our parents were, those parents were trying to protect us from, from, I mean, I don't really know what from, but kind of just like the dangers of breaking Shermanagia and kind of engaging in these activities before, like, what really is the point of saying that all men are dogs? Like, you know, it puts men in a box and it also, and I remember like we were laughing about it, like, oh, it's so funny and it's, you know, so true. But then I just think that, you know, for me personally, it was really damaging because I just saw how my friends kind of like took what are what some of those parents said and kind of brought it inwardly into our school culture. Um, and just, you know, I dated someone in high school and I remember being told like, Rebecca, like, you know, he only wants you for your body. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Like we talk about all sorts of things like we we laugh and we joke and like we're friends like it's so not just about that and I think that we just need to kind of erase the idea of all men being dogs because it really makes men be able to control and it really makes like you know just high school is the worst (laughs) like that's (laughs) all I'm gonna say like I hope that we can banish toxic masculinity for the sake of women and men here here and everyone else across the board so I guess I want to know what advice would you give someone curious about sexuality but like doesn't have necessarily the resources to learn about these things um if you could give us some websites or kind of like various pieces from your exploration that you enjoyed and really found thought-provoking maybe it was like articles or videos or whatever it was yeah there's a youtube channel that i love called sexplanations oh my god i know right (laughs) best name (laughs) it's hosted by dr Lindsay doe who's a clinical sexologist and her videos are just really informative and accessible and non-judgmental And yeah, I just love the way that she presents information and she's been doing it for years and years and there's tons of videos and um, that's a really great place to start. I also, I don't know if I mentioned this yet, but I I started a book club where we read books about sex. And how can we join? (laughs) Well, we haven't really met since the pandemic, um, but maybe we'll do a Zoom meeting or something with all of this. But um, yeah, it basically started because I was reading these books. And I I came across a TED Talk by an author named Peggy Ornstein. And it was about how there's a pleasure gap 
when it comes to sexual encounters where men orgasm more often than women do. And she talked about this idea of intimate justice and how women should demand equality in all areas of their lives, including their sex lives. And I saw that she'd written a book about this and I was like, ooh, I want to read this book and I want to talk about it with friends. And um, yeah, so then I started a book club. We've been meeting for, yeah, like three-ish years. And wow. um, so one book that we've really, really loved that we we keep coming back to yeah. is called Come As You Are mm-hmm. by Emily Nagoski. And it's basically a- Spelled C-U-M or C-O-M-E? <laughs> C-O-M-E. <laughs> but uh, yes, pun absolutely intended. Uh-huh. So, I actually thought that it might be. So I was really asking that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, the book is basically a deep dive into female sexuality. And she just does an incredible job at breaking down really complicated, nuanced ideas into very accessible language and terms. So she just has ways of coming up with language for feelings and experiences that you never really realized had like words to describe them. Um, wow. She's, yeah, it's an incredible book. And Emily Nagoski. Okay. So that's also a great one. Um, I also, Peggy Ornstein's book, Girls and Sex, the book that like inspired the book club is also fantastic. And she also just released one this year called Boys and Sex. So you oh. can read both of them and <laughs> hear both sides of that. Um, yeah, but there's also a lot of really interesting resources online. There's all sorts of webinars. One that I've done for a few years is called Explore More. Mm-hmm. It's a two-week summit where different sex educators make videos and um, the host, her name is Dawn Sarah. And so she records these conversations with different sex educators and releases them, releases like a few videos every day for two weeks and you can really do it on your own time and schedule. And cool, it's very cool. It introduces you to a lot of other really cool educators. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think also Barnard was really formative for me in that there was just so much openness on campus about sex and sexuality. Um, like I was part of a group called Take Back the Night that was – you know, about combating sexual violence on campus and everywhere and running these like sex positive programs and bringing in speakers. And so that's kind of where I got introduced to this idea of like learning about sex through like all these different resources. And then I also was Mm -hmm. part of a group called All Sex. And it was like a peer led discussion group where we met a few times a week and it was like facilitated sessions where we talked about different topics about sexuality and desire and body image and identity. And um, it was a really great like intersectional sex education that took into account race and sexuality and gender and class and religion and all these different other aspects of identity that inform our sexuality. So um, yeah, going my four years in Barnard were definitely very formative in yeah. my experience in terms of learning about sex and unlearning a lot of mm-hmm. the stigma. And what, what do you, what would you say excites you most about the book now that it's going to be out soon? 
I mean, there's so much. I When I first got my copy of the book, because they sent authors the cop, uh, the books a little bit early, I sat and read it in one sitting. I just like could not put it down, I think. Mm-hmm. I had a similar experience. <laughs> it's just so groundbreaking. I think not only is, you know, are the stories and poems in there just like beautifully written and just so authentic and honest and heartfelt, but just the fact that this is even a book that exists at all is just so exciting to me. Like I agree. it's just such a powerful statement of yeah. like, these are the voices that have not been listened to. Mm-hmm. And these are our experiences that have not been given space. Absolutely. And we are taking up that space now and it feels really good. Yeah. I also love speaking to you because your attitude is just, it's, that Judaism is so diverse and that you can make space for every type of person out there, I feel is just a really valuable thing. And, you know, I think we've talked about these stories a lot and how amazing they are, but I just want to say that the stories talk are coming from women who come from all different religious backgrounds. They cover rape and Snood and Nida and just so many different topics are addressed in this book that, you know, it's just really exciting to speak to you and feel that there is really a possibility for every person to make space for who they are and their story and the diversity of experiences and how, you know, you can talk about sex, but you can also want to lane. Like for me, I think that that um, that those two shouldn't compromise one or the other. And I think that the more that we can open the conversation about sexuality and the physical, then I think that there's, I guess I've just always thought, you know, spiritual and physical are very separate, but I just think it's all one and the same and both experiences fuel each other in different ways. And I think this book really highlights that, Halacha is as much as it is the right thing and there's the wrong thing in law and yes and no, it's also deeply personal and deeply about choice that a person makes for themselves. And that this is something I think also I just struggle with in, you know, religion and religious outlook is that at the end of the day, you choose what you're going to do, even though. Some of the choices might not be written down in the way that you um, might want them to be written down. This is still, there's text and then there's you, you know, and like creating that separation and talking about it and creating something bigger outside of the text really speaks to me. That is so well said. I feel like I just got on. I That was my, my monologue. <laughs> right? I'm snapping. I'm snapping. Yeah. This is our little Thursday night open mic. This is how we're welcoming Elul. You know, we're forgiving ourselves for everything and just cleansing. Absolutely. Yeah. There is so much forgiveness that I think we as women are, we're so hard on ourselves. Mm. The world is hard on us too, but we internalize that a lot. And so, just the ability to forgive ourselves for being human, I think, is very powerful. 
Yeah. And then we got into a discussion about the discrepancy between what is said in the Torah versus what one actually practices and how to reconcile the differences between those two. I, I think that everybody sort of picks and chooses whether they want to admit it or not. Like nobody keeps everything all the time. And um, I think for me, I made, I've made decisions where I prioritize my overall happiness and feeling of connection with God and Torah versus like the minutia of one specific law. So like yeah. one one way where that's manifested itself was like when because I really love singing and I grew up in a community where like Kol Isha, like this prohibition of women singing in front of men me- meant that I couldn't sing publicly and couldn't do things. And, um, you know, I did a lot of research into the halacha of it and there's lots to say about that topic like for another time, but I ultimately made the decision not to keep it anymore because I was just so deeply unhappy and resentful when I was keeping it. I just felt really stifled and I just felt like this is not what God wants for me. I feel like God wants me to use my voice and to not be so frustrated and sad about feeling so silenced and like, okay, so I'm going to compromise on this one particular area, but it's going to make me a better Eved Hashem. Like, it's just going to make me happier and improve my relationship with God to not feel weighed down by this. So I think everyone has to make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. If you're somebody who talks about these things with a rabbi or a spiritual mentor of some kind, like, they can be helpful resources or you just listen to your gut and be like, I mean, that's what I did. I didn't yeah. like ask a rabbi's permission. I just made the decision for myself. And yeah. um, I have no regrets. At the end of the day, I think that God wants you to be happy and wants you to practice in a way that works for you. So um, I guess it's a developing story how to kind of reconcile the two. But one big um helpful thing is support and community and finding people who also feel the same way you do because Judaism is so much of like a tribal communal religion. So that is also deeply part of our practice is the community. Absolutely. I like I always feel really happy when I see like people post engagement photos on Facebook where they're not pretending to be showmare. It just makes me feel like validated in my decision to also like not be Shomernigia. And I'm like, good. Like I feel like I know these people. They're incredibly like dedicated Jewish people who care a lot about Judaism and God and Torah. And yet like we're also acknowledging that like it's not a normal thing to not touch your romantic partner. So like I think, right, when you see other people – making these decisions for themselves, it it gives you a little more courage, a little more license to, you know, do your own thing too and make decisions that are right for you. And I think that's also Mm -hmm. part of the goal of the book too is that, you know, we want to just show that like other people are dealing with this too. And here's how they've made these decisions and here's how they've grappled with it. And, you know, if it helps other people to see that this is you know, something that a lot of people have dealt with in different ways. And, you know, like a lot of people have their own 
like paths and there's no one right way to go about it. But mm. just seeing other people do this and and reading other people's stories can, you know, give you permission to re-examine it for yourself. Yeah. So this book has been a really wonderful experience for me to read and for me to regain confidence in some of the aspects of my personal life that I have felt shame towards. So for that, I am very grateful. And if you are a writer who is listening, I deeply appreciate you for sharing your story. And for some of the writers in here that I know, I loved reading your story and I'm so just proud and feel grateful that I am part of a Hevra that values talking about sexuality and all of these issues from of our from our upbringings because I think that we will be able to instill a healthy attitude towards their sexuality for our children and our children's children. Talia, so where can we find monologues from the Makom? Yeah, Monologues from the Makom is available September 1st, but you can pre-order it on Amazon and directly from Ben Yehuda Press. Mm-hmm. And if you read the book and love it, definitely feel free to leave a positive review or share it on social media or tell mm-hmm. your friends. And yeah, we just really want to get the word out about this really awesome groundbreaking project. So, so what's the Instagram? They've been doing a lot of the editors have been doing Q&As that have been really great. So you should follow the Instagram to stay updated. Yeah, the Instagram is MFT Makom monologues from the Mako. Okay. And um, it's also, there's also a Facebook page. Yeah. They've been doing really fun, like Instagram Q and A's and takeovers and stuff. So anyways, Talia, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It has been lovely. Thank you so much for having me. Hey there. Oh,